Hello, and welcome to the YJBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I'm Samantha, a first-year Master of Public Health student in the Department of Health Policy. And I'm Mara Akushleman, the second-year PhD student in microbiology. And we are happy to be back on our normal schedule week to week. We will probably be taking break for Christmas, and we'll be keeping you posted about what the dates are going to look like. Absolutely. But, yeah. but for now, let's dive into our papers. So, what's the first article of today? So, this article discusses the link between the recall of traumatic memories in people with post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD, that differ significantly from how quote-unquote regular memories are processed. In order to examine whether there is, in fact, a link between the PTSD and irregular intrusions during the recall of negative memories, Scientists from Yale observed the neural activity of patients with PTSD who were listening to themselves recounting their own traumatic memories. So, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on PTSD and how emotions are processed by the brain before we discuss the study as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. So, according to the American Psychiatric Association, PTSD is a disorder that can occur when people have experiences or witnessed a traumatic event, and its consequences can include intense and disturbing thoughts or feelings related to the traumatic event. So flashbacks and and nightmares, sadness, fear, anger, detachment, or a host of other emotional or psychiatric effects. And the types of emotions that are, you know, experienced by humans, and especially these types of Um, experiences are governed by activations of specialized neuronal populations throughout the cerebral cortex. Okay, um, now that we're up to speed, what exactly did they find in this study? So this study observed 28 participants with a mean age of 38.3 years, 11 of which, which were females, who were diagnosed with PTSD and who listened to the narration of their traumatic event while undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. In the end, the team says that they had two key findings. The emotional content of autobiographical memories is represented differently in the two major systems subserving autobiographical memory, so the hippocampus and the PCC. And second, that traumatic autobiographical memories undergo a parallel or dissociable mode of representation, suggesting that they profoundly differ from neurotypical autobiographical memories of comparable content and valence. And they definitely suggested some theories behind their findings, and there are four ones that we'll look into right now. The first one is that highly personal and detailed nature of these traumatic personal memories is such that their semantic representations are highly unique to the individual. Another one would be that PTSD phenomenology makes personal autobiographical memories into highly unique representations, despite the memories actually being semantically similar to other memories. Next, traumatic memory is not experienced as memory, but rather disconnected from from the current context temporally and spatially, to the point that it's experienced as an intrinsic mental event. And the last one being that patients have tried to block or suppress the reactivation of traumatic memories to the point that, as a result, the brain activity that the team witnesses when doing the study is actually not in alignment with the semantic content presented to the study participants. That's, that's actually very interesting. Um, so what was the final decision about this association from the team? 
So in the end, the scientists suggested that traumatic memories are an alternative cognitive entity that is different from memory. So they're actually experienced not as memories, but rather as fragments of prior events. Interesting. Well, let's see if they continue their studies because it feels like they're just hypothesizing at this point. I'm curious to see how can they actually prove this kind of theory. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> so, moving on, what do you have to tell us, Mara? Well, the second study that we're looking at is this longitudinal study about progression of neurodegeneration, and it was performed in collaboration between Yale Zone, Lim Lab, and several other academic groups. Cool, so what was the objective of their study? They were researching this one neurodegenerative disorder called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, spinous cerebral cerebellar ataxia type 1. We'll continue calling it SCA1. <laughs> um, it is a disease that affects an area of the brain called cerebellum, which is mostly responsible for certain motor functions of the body. So when it is affected um, and the disease is progressing, it causes progressive motor dysfunction in individuals. It's highly debilitated disease and treatments are quite limited. Now, most research nowadays focuses on what is called, and again, I'm probably going to pronounce this correctly, for Kinji cells, which are a specific subpopulation um, which decreases during um, this kind of disease in the brain, in cerebellum. But there are a lot of other processes going on. Yeah, what was so novel about their approach? So, as I already said, they were focusing on other brain types besides Purkinji cells in the cerebellum, well, they were also focusing on those cells as well. So the basic approach was that they wanted to see which cell types are involved. So they were um, using samples from postmortem brains from people who died from this disease. And they were also studying brains of mice that were infected. I guess infectious is not the right word. It's not an infectious disease, just to be clear. <laughs> uh, sick mice, and they were following them, taking samples over a time period to see, not just take a point of a disease near the end um, or somewhere in the middle, but actually to see how it progresses from early stages to late stages, uh, which I found really interesting and pretty novel. And uh, they were seeing how cell populations change quantitatively and what kind of expression um, patterns they can see as well. Cool, and what did they find? So, first of all, they did find that a lot more cell types are than Purkinje cells are involved in this process. Um, and they also saw those populations progress again from early stages to late stages of disease, which is pretty fascinating. And What's also really cool is that they use deep learning mechanisms to see if they can predict how certain cells will change expression of different proteins and different factors over the course of disease, and if they can, from these findings, predict how the disease will progress and how cells will change on an individual level. Um, and they actually took samples and they were trying, they were able to predict pretty well with this machine learning mechanism that they developed. That is so interesting. So I imagine their findings can be used in predicting ataxia in patients? Well, it's not quite as developed as that just yet, um, but I can imagine it would be really useful for both personalized treatments and prediction. And 
I think it's also important that we're trying to look at diseases not just at late stages, like what is the outcome, but also find what precedes the disease development and how we can stop it or maybe catch it at early stages and make it more manageable. So it really falls into this medicinal framework. Okay, Sam, so what's the next article you have for us? So this next one is about the high prevalence of hepatitis C virus co-infection in persons who inject drugs and how this prevalence is ever-increasing due to the evolving opioid epidemic in the U.S. The study explores provider perspective of factors that prevent hepatitis C virus microelimination efforts in people with HIV. So what the, what were the factors that the study found? So perceptions of unstable living conditions, adherence and motivation shaped by implicit biases that were stigmatizing and often blamed the patient are really key factors that are shaping the, you know, challenges that we're having in the microelimination of, um, you know, hep C virus in people with HIV. So, you know, to talk further about these implicit biases and the tendency to blame the patient for them being untreated, there are really some treatment barriers that are highly prioritized, those being homelessness, patient inability to adhere to medications, patient unwillingness to accept treatment, patients having too many comorbidities, patients um, having problems with completing pretreatment evaluation requirements, them not returning to the clinic, clinic for visits, and patients actively using drugs. However, it's really interesting because these are factors that are perceived by um, the providers, but when prompted, clinicians were able to identify where part of the problem was actually on their side in not offering alternative delivery methods of treatment or lacking the counseling skills to really get to these patients. And you see in the study that clinicians really thought that the root cause of these barriers were individual lives of patients, whereas data actually shows that patients with those same barriers can in fact successfully treat their, their hepatitis C virus. So for example, the Simplify study affirmed that a high like 94% cure rate for patients actively using drugs or patients who have unstable housing. So this shows that these factors that per providers perceive as you know, really prohibited prohibiting patients from getting the hep C virus um, treatment, those, those factors are not as important as what the clinicians are perceiving. And so in the study, they really say that a possible solution to this is for patients to be engaged in low demand treatment prog programs that really meet the patients where they are and bring care to patients, for, for example, if they're homeless, you know, it's gonna be hard for them to get to the clinic or, you know, keep track of their visits and everything. So it's bringing the care to patients rather than making people who live in unstable conditions adhere to rigorous visit schedules that they might face resource, resource or transportation barriers to access. That is actually very interesting. Um, I read something on that today that, like how much stigma people with HIV face just because a lot of clinics for HIV infected individuals are specifically for HIV people and so if somebody is seen going in there there's so much stigma in the community that like it places a blame on them already just just because somebody's been seen in an HIV clinic yeah and there's some initiatives at Yale to try and make like infectious diseases clinics 
to be inclusive of HIV patients as well, um, to kind of try to reduce that perception and um, like make it easier for people with HIV to receive care. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, where we look at data and we say that in order for um, data to be shared, it should it should be de-identified. The same thing could be um, true in real life. When you're walking down the street, maybe there's a way for the buildings where you go to go get HIV treatment to be more subtle and to be de-identified so that you don't just walk in somewhere and someone off the street or someone you know knows that you're specifically going to get infectious disease treatment. Yeah, like, that, that's personal stuff. Yeah. Well, not everybody needs to know that. You don't need to walk into a building that has a big sign that says you have HIV and you're getting treatment. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. True. Okay. Yeah. So moving on, Mara, what do you have for us in our last study? Well, this is also a collaboration study between Yale, represented by Krishna Swami Lab, and University College of London. Cool. So what, what did they do? What were they looking at? Um, they were looking at how tumors, so cancerous tumors, influence the surrounding cell tissue and are influenced in return. Because I feel like sometimes scientists and clinicians treat tumors just as some kind of separate object, but forget that they exist in the intricate system of an organism and are impacted by the cells and tissues surrounding them, by, say, cytokines they release or like different expressions, uh, different signals, um, so on and so forth. So they were really trying to untangle this relationship. And what they did for that is they took samples from patients with colon cancer and they developed organoids from those samples. Okay, and um, why are they using colon cancer and not any other tumor type or not several types of cancers? Well, the reason is that I, I asked the same question and um, it's because colon cancer specifically is characterized by high variability between patients with colon cancer and also very specific response to therapy that varies individual to individual. Um, so I think that was really interesting for them to look at because they're looking at a very personalized approach here. And another thing why they didn't use different cancers, I think that would be an interesting question to ask in further studies. Um, but here they're focusing on this type and for controls they were using non-infected tissue. Like, oh. Not cancerous tissues, I assume. I, I'm just thinking about infectious diseases too much. Everything <laughs> is infection to me at this point. Um, yeah, so... I'll just continue about the methods for now. Yeah. Well, to analyze what is going on in those organoids, they developed a novel data analysis tool called Trellis, and that allowed them to analyze the expression on single cell level. And... From that, they also use different therapeutic methods to, like, like chemotherapy, to influence those organoids, and then they analyzed how well they responded, how they responded in general, including both tumors and surrounding tissues. Cool. And what did what did they find? Uh, they found that it was exactly a highly individualized response. So they were able to observe what was going on in the organoids, but what was more interesting to me is that they found this individual difference at all, and I feel like they would be able to use it in the future. And when I mean individuals, I mean 
the same kind of tumor because it's all colon cancer, it's all the same type of tumor that um, a doctor would look at and prescribe same kind of chemotherapy, but there would be so many different responses to it. It really shows that personalized medicine is, is the way to go. It's, we've been talking for years about it, but there's not a confirmation and it's an actual working method. For example, if a patient comes in with a form of tumor, if we're able to take a sample and grow an organ away from it and test different chemotherapies before blasting that patient with chemotherapy, yeah. and to see something that's more efficient for them, that would be amazing. No, I agree, and I, and I think that the perspective you're sharing should be shared across different comorbidities that patients have. Because for example, you know, there are different diseases like diabetes. There are so many different medications to treat it. And yet it seems as though, at least from my personal experience, patients go through levels of different medications. Like we're going to start you with this one and then this one and then this one. But that's only after you've shown to not have a response to the first one. And people have such individual reactions to all of these different medications that it almost seems like a little bit harsh on the patient's body for everyone to be starting out with the same medicine and then having to go to another one whereas it they could benefit from perhaps having the clinician look a little deeper and say hey maybe this medicine for your illness is better than this other medicine that we would start someone else on first and I like that we've been seeing more studies related to that, um, highlighting the genetic diversity of people coming in with the same disease um, and trying to create tailored therapeutics. Um, I really like the direction we see this moving. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, sometimes people are blasted with a little too many medicines before they land on the right one and that's harsh on their body. So I'm, I'm excited to see where individualized um, treatment plans go. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you guys for sticking with us today, and we will see you next week. I'm sure about after that, but as I said, we'll keep you posted. Yeah, keep you posted. Thank you for listening. Bye.